Welcome to the Business of Being Brilliant, where I explore the human side of work. I talk to business leaders, academics, authors and other experts about when they've worked at their best and when they've floundered. We find out how to change organisations for the better so that everyone can flourish. I'm your host, Helen Beedham, organisational expert, speaker and author of the Amazon best-selling business book, The Future of Time. All the show notes are on my website at helenbeedham.com, where you can also sign up for my monthly insights into the latest work trends, plus some exclusive offers to help you flourish at work and at home. Now let's crack on with this week's episode. Hello, welcome to the second episode of Series 4. And here's my usual brief news update before we hear from my guest this week. I'm recording this on Friday the 20th of January. We're past the halfway point of the month. How's it been going for you? What's been making you smile or groan? I'm still chuckling at seeing my nephew's amazing home for his hamster. It's a customisable set of tubes and pods with retractable roofs for easy cleaning. It looks amazing and so much fun for the hamster. It's a long way from the boring cages and plastic hamster wheels we had when I was a child. Pet homes aside, it has been a full-on week for me, as a fair bit of December work got pushed into January. We've had a family funeral and I've been working late in the evenings for a voluntary role relating to the UK's cladding crisis. Despite my good intentions to spend more evenings doing something relaxing, I've been neglecting the lovely jigsaw I'd been making progress on recently. A few days ago, my husband started adding a few pieces here and there, and now every morning I come downstairs to see another large patch completed. If I don't get a move on, it'll be finished by next week's podcast. I know I'm not alone in feeling like downtime and family time has been a bit squeezed lately. Yesterday, I was weeping quietly into my soup over lunch at the news that Jacinda Ardern is stepping down as New Zealand's Prime Minister, citing burnout after six years in the role. She has led the way in showing what emotionally intelligent, compassionate leadership looks like at the highest level, while still taking the tough decisions and managing the big risks. And true to form, she spoke honestly about her reasons for exiting the top job, saying, we give all that we can for as long as it's time, and then it's time. Adding, there's nothing left in the tank. I've heard several leaders talk this week about their desire to claim back some time for themselves and their families. I can't help but think that it would be far better not to have outsized roles and workloads and a burnout culture in the first place so we can all enjoy longer, more sustainable careers and home lives. And I wrote in my January newsletter this week about how we can change this all-consuming work culture by cultivating what I call time intelligence, or TQ. How we help people get off their hamster wheels by taking a deeper, more critical look at how work gets done across the organisation. But it takes courage to speak up to highlight unproductive ways of working, to say no, or to propose a different, untested way of getting the work done, 
even if you're a senior leader. I was giving a talk about time intelligence to a leadership team of a very successful, fast-growing global business yesterday. And they were commenting that they've talked about the drawbacks of their speed-driven work culture for years and still haven't figured out how to address this. We'll come on to the question of how to find and use our courage at work very shortly. Before then, here's a couple of things you might like to check out this week. Firstly, I'll be talking about time intelligence and my business book, The Future of Time, on the Engage for Success radio show at 5.30pm GMT on the day this podcast airs, Monday the 23rd of January. Engage for Success is a voluntary movement inspiring people and organisations to thrive and they share fantastic resources, statistics and advice on ways to increase employee engagement. And secondly, on Friday the 30th of January, I'm giving a talk to the Coach Matters Network on applying consulting skills to grow your business. Coach Matters offers business development support to recently qualified coaches looking to grow their coaching business. You can register for free as a Coach Matters Founding 50 member and enjoy full network benefits until September this year. I'll pop links to my January newsletter, Monday's radio show and Friday's consulting talk in the show notes. And if you're spotting hamster wheels spinning in your organisation or feeling like you're stuck on one yourself right now, drop me a line at hello at helenbeedham.com and let's chat. Right, let's hear now from my guest this week, who is a leading expert on the topic of using our courage at work. I'm delighted to be joined this week by Jim Duterte. Jim is the John L. Colley Professor of Business Administration at the Darden Graduate School of Business Administration and a Professor of Public Policy at the Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy, both at the University of Virginia. He has received numerous awards for his teaching in both MBA and Executive MBA programmes. His writing on workplace courage and related topics is grounded in decades of formal research and brought to life based on intimate portraits of leaders and ordinary people he's come to know personally. Jim is a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review, and his research has appeared in many other leading professional publications. He's also the author of Choosing Courage, The Everyday Guide to Being Brave at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. Jim thrives on empowering people to have difficult conversations, to engage rather than avoid challenging situations, and to competently embrace other opportunities for courageous action in their own lives and workplaces. Welcome to the business of being brilliant, Jim. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you and your listeners, Helen. Thank you. I had the pleasure of reading your book over the festive break, and I'm really looking forward to getting under the skin of workplace courage with you today. And if I'm right, timing-wise, I think we were both writing our own business books during the first winter of lockdown. Is that right? I think I might have been a few months ahead of you there. But yeah, I had certainly the same experience as you of launching a book right smack in the heart of the first year in the pandemic. So yeah, that was certainly a novel experience among the obvious many novel experiences we had. 
<laughs> and did you find lockdown helped or hindered the writing process for you? It's interesting. I had been gearing up to write the book for quite some time, but I was a dean of our executive MBA program at the time. And I had fallen into the trap of not writing because I didn't have these huge stretches of time. And my wife, for a Christmas holiday, gave me a writing magazine. And the, it just happened that the first article in the first issue I opened up was called something like how to write your novel in nine minutes a day. <laughs> and laid out this basic, like if you just wrote, you'd write this many words in nine minutes, and that would produce like a 500 page book actually within a year. And so I went into the end of that year. And I think I remember I started on December 27th, I decided I was going to write 15 minutes a day, just 15. And I told myself, look, even if I'm sick, no matter what I'm doing that day, I can find 15 minutes. So I'm going to write 15 minutes a day, and I'm not going to skip a day until I have a draft of this book done. And I, I don't remember anymore what the exact finish date was, but I never missed a day. And on something like June or July, I was in fact done with a draft. And and that for me worked incredibly well because it taught me that it is about just time and chair, but also that I didn't have to wait for have these huge chunks of time. I think it's actually a great tip for just in general doing things that feel too big to do. It's just that incredible reminder of saying most of the time, if you allow yourself to say, I don't feel like doing it. If you allow yourself to say, look, I'll just get started five minutes. And if in five minutes, I don't feel like continuing, I'll let myself stop. The vast majority of the time, you'll go a lot further. So in the end, I didn't need the huge chunks of the pandemic. I had to draft before then. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. And I totally agree that setting really small, more easily achievable targets each day just helps take that pressure off. Because when you you've got 55,000 or more words to write. It's quite a wait to get through it and to know that that page needs to be filled each day. So yeah, really interesting to hear. And I'm really impressed that you wrote every single day, including weekends and holidays. I did. I did. Yeah. But you know, it's actually, and I, I hope we'll talk about this, it's, it's actually very relevant to the issue of developing one's courage muscle and becoming more competently courageous is this notion of small, steady steps of progress and not trying to tackle the hardest thing first and also not expecting yourself to be productive or capable at first. It's the same set of principles um, that actually in the end underlined how I wrote the book. Yeah, fantastic. Well, we'll definitely get a bit more into that very shortly. But I gave a very quick feel for listeners of your career and the roles you've held and your education and career are focused on management and sociology and organizational behavior. Was that a career path that you had consciously planned from the outset? And have you always wanted to, and chosen to stay in academia? Yeah, so I, I think there are roughly speaking two kinds of people in this regard. And I have to admit, I've always been jealous of the first type these people who say like, at eight years old, I knew I wanted to be a doctor or whatever. And I, I've always been jealous of that. It seemed like somehow that would be easier, but that was not me. <laughs> I am in the second type, which is that I have gotten to where I sit today, largely by doing things and being reasonably attuned to whether I'm enjoying them and feel like continuing them, or actually I'm quite clear I don't like them, don't want to do them from college on. I got to where I am largely as much as by closing doors that clearly were not interesting 
to me or didn't feel right for me. And I guess one way of staying on the right path for oneself is to not actually get on the wrong paths or as quickly as possible, get back on a path. And that has definitely been the case for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting reflection that just how often do we consciously choose not to follow a particular opportunity or actually even by staying in what we're doing, we're making that conscious choice actually to stay committed to the the role in hand, even if we don't realize we're making that as a conscious choice. Yeah. And so when did you get to start to become interested in courage in the context of our world of work? I know it's something you've been researching and writing about for many years, but was there something that triggered that or led you into that? So the initial intellectual trigger was actually very early in my PhD studies. I did a large project on a challenge of a speaking up problem, right? A company whose climate was riddled with fear and a sense of futility around speaking up. And I actually found that ended up being my doctoral dissertation. And I found as part of that process that the general finding, of course, it remains true is that when people feel it's safe to speak up, generally, they're more willing to do so and do. And when they think it's risky or futile, they don't. But that there was a small set of people in my data who explicitly said, no, it's not safe, but I do it anyway. And I remember very early on, I had made a note to myself, like, this is clearly an instance of workplace courage, recognizing the risk, but acting anyway. And I actually started a draft of a first paper on courage, but then life happened and I didn't do anything with it, but I was teaching leadership courses, uh, graduate MBA level courses, executive MBA courses. And repeatedly at the end of my courses, I would give just a short wrap up speech. And I'd say, look, we've added a lot of tools to your toolkits. You've learned a lot of concepts and frameworks about leadership. But I need to say one more thing. And that is, I don't think it matters how big your toolkit is. The moments will come when you either have the courage or not to use the tools. And that I believe is what's going to define you as a leader. And was that plus then maybe two or three more minutes of some inspirational quotes about being courageous that I would end the course with. But I started to consistently get feedback saying, this should have been the course and we need a course on this. And why isn't there a whole module on courage? And uh, it was really that repetitive desire from the students that I was working with or consulting engagements I was doing. That led me to finally say, okay, this is no longer just an intellectual interest for me. It's clear, it's clear that people out there recognize the need for more willingness and more competence in the realm of, of doing scary things that feel important or worthwhile or morally correct. And I think it connects a lot to what we were just talking about, choosing paths. I have often thought when I see people, particularly in executive MBA or consulting and get people in their, let's say forties, people who have been working 20 years or so already. And there's a little bit of a sense of like Thoreau's quote about most men, of course, he, nowadays it would say people lead lives of quiet desperation. Yeah. And uh, by no means I'm saying the people I work with are desperate, but that sense of you've been working 10, 15, 20 years, and that's sense of, is this it? I got 20, 30, 40 years left. Is this it? Am I just on this path where 
I'm not fully engaged or satisfied. I don't feel fully respected or included or alive, but I don't know what to do. I don't know how to be more agentic. I don't know how to stand up more for myself. I don't know how to be bolder. I don't know. In a lot of cases, I don't know how to have the courage to change organizations or jobs. And I think that at some level, it was that that continuous emotional sense I got from people of there should be more. How can we find more? That really made a difference in motivating me to to learn more. Yeah. And would you say that with the relatively recent rise or focus on purpose-driven careers and responsible purpose-driven businesses, that you've seen that need increase and become much more conscious in people over the last 5, 10, 15 years? Or, or is it, it just varies by age that people get to is one reference point you just mentioned. And I guess the pandemic has inevitably led a lot of people to question what they invest their time and their weeks in and whether it's worthwhile. Yeah, as I know from your own background and work, it's a little hard to discern which signals, which, which things we're seeing a lot more of now are really new in the underlying causes versus are just manifesting because the pandemic has finally led people to say enough or my priorities are now finally different. As you well know, mm-hmm. if you look at things we've been tracking for a long time, like employee engagement, if we look at job satisfaction, true feeling of inclusiveness or commitment to an organization. These have been, frankly, bad for a long time. Yeah. Way, 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 decades before the pandemic. Uh, it is not news in the pandemic that many people didn't feel trust in their manager, didn't feel the culture of their organization was healthy or fulfilling. All of these things, as you well know, they've been around for a long time. And listeners know that. Listeners know their job didn't just suddenly become any of those things from the pandemic. What has probably changed for quite for millions of people around the world is the overall calculus of what will I put up with or what do I want for my life or what trade-offs have I now? I think that has changed, mm-hmm. but we've known that the world of work is not really all it could or should be for a really long time. Yeah, yeah that's a great point. The data's been saying the same thing for a long time and it has. to differentiate between causes and or different spotlights highlighting things we've been ignoring for too long. I think what's changed is the willingness to do something about it on the employee side. Yeah. But if you would say like the employer or the organizational causal side, this is not news, right? That people are disengaged or feel like cogs in a machine or any of the other things we read about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's dig into courage a little bit next. And early in choosing courage, you make the point, if I've understood it correctly, that courage is really an everyday skill that we can all practice and hone and apply rather than something that the fortunate few happen to have been genetically born with that gives them an advantage. Is that right? And if so, can you just say a little bit more about Yeah. I mean, first of all, let's just talk about the evidence itself. Is there evidence that there is some kind of personality or genetic disposition um, that leads to competent, courageous action? 
And the answer, as far as I'm aware, is no, there is no such evidence. It's not just that I can't find it or people more recently haven't been able to find it. In some form or another, people have been looking for this for a long time. In World War II, right, there were there were folks who, at great risk to themselves, sheltered Jews for sustained periods of time. And after World War II, many social scientists studied and tried to figure out, like, were these people different? They're the famous Milgram deference to authority shock experiments. And similarly, right, Milgram spent years trying to figure out, were there personality dispositions that explained to And pretty much across the board, the answer has been no. There's no magic bullet personality that makes people courageous or skillfully courageous. And a different way to think about that, which we can generally all resonate with is in all philosophical or religious tradition, there are cardinal virtues, right? Or core virtues or values. Moderation, kindness, fairness. And I don't think we walk around with a narrative that says it's unfortunate that 90% of people are jerks because only 10% were born with the kindness gene. Or it's it's unfortunate that 75% of people are like foolishly immoderate, wasteful, and crazy because only 25% were born. Yeah, we don't do that. When we talk about virtues... The expectation is it's hard to do these things, but everybody has the potential and obligation to do them. Yeah. For whatever reason, when it comes to courage, we like to put it in a different category and say, I guess that's just for some of us some of the time. And it's because I wasn't born that way. And there's a lot of reasons why that probably is. If you think about narratives, stories, the narrative about the hero is indeed that the hero is a very special kind of person, right? Is a superhero. And that narrative, of course, contributes to the idea that most of us are not that. And then, of course, when asked, name a courageous person or tell a courageous story, most of us will will naturally default to something about Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela or whoever. And so we also, we talk about that incredible person. And so one of the things I've been very conscious about in my own work is I talk about the bank teller and the supermarket clerk and, and people who are just like you and me, because I think the stories we tell also either reinforce the narrative that it's just special people or they help us see, no, it's people just like us who are owning the responsibility to stand up and do hard things. And to practice getting better at that. Yeah, I think that's so important as a message, isn't it? And I completely agree with what you're saying about we have over time developed this kind of cult of the CEO or of the great, almost superhuman individual. And and yet what you were saying about there is no genetic differentiation when it comes to courage, that's actually a very reassuring and encouraging message. And I wonder if one of the reasons why we don't treat courage in the same way we treat the other virtues, as you were just describing, is perhaps because of the fear factor. And, you know, might absolutely see something they want to do or an injustice they want to put right or want to bring about a change that feels really stretching or challenging. But they're probably weighing up 
the pros and cons of doing that and thinking about okay well what's what's the potential fallout and the negative risks to me so can you explain how you help people overcome those kind of limiting fears yeah i think you're right by the way about that like when you're raising your kids right one of my daughters said something mean to the other or was complaining about fairness or whatever. First of all, we would never be subject to them saying, well, I can't be nice to her. What do you think I am, Winston Churchill? Like, <laughs> we don't talk that way about other virtues, right? So that makes it a little easier right out of the gate. But then also, you're right, like, being moderate in our choices or being kind, they don't feel risky. Right. They don't they don't usually have quite the fear element that courage does. And so I do think that's what distinguishes. That's one of the things that distinguishes courageous action. So how do you deal with that? Well, a few ways. One, I think it's helping people realize that one of the reasons courageous actions feel so frightening and risky is that when we're asked to think about being courageous, we tend to think about that scariest activity. We tend to think about, oh, you tell me to be more courageous at work. You tell me to blow the whistle and be on the BBC or lose my job. When in fact, actually what I'm mostly saying is, what if you just gave that peer some honest feedback about the way what they said to you hurts? Or what if instead of sugarcoating the truth about why your subordinate's not getting a promotion, you just told the truth about their limitations and what they need to do. And so one of the ways I think we help people deal with this fear barrier is you change the scale of the action to much, much more manageable starting behaviors. And you help people realize, yeah, we're not talking about um, blow up your career level behavior and certainly not right out of the gate. And then I think there's a different element of of asking people to just do some actual reconsideration of like, well, what identities do you say are important to you? What life objectives do you say are important to you? What what values do you claim to have? What do you hope your legacy will be? And then to say, can you actually achieve any of those things by not undertaking some risk? Um, and I think most people, if they're honest, will say, look, I can't say I support these causes or these identity groups or these values and never take a risk. That's the nature of the world, right? Is that those things are violated. Those things are put in jeopardy. And so I think part of it is helping people change the magnitude of the fear they experience. But the other part of it is helping people ask themselves some questions about, is it reasonable for me to continue this storytelling about myself mm. and the regrets I do or don't want to have if I'm not willing to take some action? Yes, that makes sense. And you, you mentioned it a little earlier about how you deliberately chose people in everyday work situations as data points and anecdotes and case studies in the book. I thoroughly enjoyed reading about them because so often business books are about great big events in great big companies with very high profile, almost celebrity leaders. And that can feel quite distancing as a reader and necessarily relate to that personally. 
So I found that incredibly relatable about your book. I mean, one of the things that you you learn over time when you really engage in this domain is that it's a bit sad for me to tell you this, but I think there is a difference between being inspired by something or someone and being inspired to do something. And the more heroic and distal the person we're talking about is, the more we are inspired by them, but distinctly not inspired to do anything. Because it's too easy to say, I'm not that, I'm not like that. But if you want to shrink that gap between it's inspiring, oh, and I'm supposed to do that too. I think people have to be relatable. Yes, Um, which is really helpful to bear in mind as we listen to that, if we're thinking about something we want to change where we work or in, in our industry is that we don't have to set up some great big campaign or secure a load of stakeholders on board or funding or whatever. Actually, by taking small everyday steps and acts of courage, we are more likely to inspire others who are watching and observing to take the same or similar steps, which in its own way can lead to a groundswell of behavior change and and shifting of norms over time. I think that's true. I hope that's true. I think it's true. I also think it's true that people often... We have a hard time understanding all the different ripples of influence. And so too often we stick our neck out. We do something that felt risky to us. And maybe even we got a little bit hammered for it. And we say, well, it didn't do anything anyway. But what we're not seeing is that in so many instances, change is cumulative. Someone says something hurtful to you or someone else. And you say, hey, I didn't think that was cool. And maybe the person who you say that to says, yeah, don't be such a, or gets defensive. Okay, fine. But that doesn't mean that when the person hears, hey, that isn't cool, or some variant of don't talk that way, enough times, at some point, it's not going to sink in. This is offensive. It also doesn't mean that if you and others start to say that enough times, eventually someone with more power is going to realize this guy or gal's a jerk and I need to take some action. So part of it, I suppose, is the way we think about what it means to be influential and we're courageous and realizing that effects take time, right? Systems and people desperately want to stay the way they are. And you need to keep chipping away and not thinking like your one act produces the result. Yeah. Or that it has to be instantaneous, as you say, because so often, and I can think of instances of this in my own career where I've seen someone behave a certain way that was inspiring to me. And it doesn't mean I'm going to act on it myself tomorrow. It might percolate for quite a long time and the actual opportunity to practice it might not come around for a bit. And so... I don't, you're saying we shouldn't feel discouraged that if we don't see immediate results, that makes sense. I guess the one other thing I would just add to that is I also think it's, in many cases, it's just not the right standard anyway for judgment. People will often say to me, well, I tried to use all these tools. I think I was pretty skillful in my communication, but that person just wouldn't change. So, so this is all for, and I said, well, I think that's the wrong standard. 
that standard suggests that you could ever get to a place of having control over others, which you cannot. I think the standard in a lot of cases is actually when you go home at the end of the day and you look in the mirror can, and you ask yourself the question, was I as skillful as I could have been in that moment? Am I proud of what I did and tried to do today? If your answer to that question is yes, then you have succeeded. Yeah. So sometimes, right, it's also just about what's your definition of success? Yeah. And accepting the limits of our yeah. control and influence. And that's right. As you say, we can't change we other really people. control is us. And are yeah. we are we okay with how we have behaved? That's the one standard you can control. Yes. Yeah, that's a really helpful reminder. And I know in the book, you break down acts of courage and help people think about how they set the scene for a courageous act and managing the messaging and priming people, if that's helpful, et cetera, then actually in the moment. But then also importantly, you talk about the follow-up to the courageous act and how it's easy to forget about that, but that can be a crucial part of making a really positive impact or picking up the pieces more constructively if it hasn't quite gone according to plan. Yeah, yeah, that's right. If we were to say, okay, hey, listeners, do you think this is obvious enough? Yes or no? And you say, is setting the stage important, right? Building the right coalition, building up your own credibility. Yeah, all your listeners say, yeah, of course that's important. If you'd say, you know, is getting clear on whether this is the right issue for you to raise? Is it the right time? Is that everybody would say yes. And if we'd say, well, then the, how you deliver the message itself matters, right? Framing matters, being non-offensive, managing emotions, do those things matter? Everybody would say yes. I think it certainly was the case for me. The, the thing that I certainly hadn't thought as much about, but I really learned from, from careful discussions with people who were described by others as really good at taking courageous action that made a difference was this follow-up step. Mm-hmm. And indeed, it matters no matter how the initial effort went. Let's say you make a presentation, a pitch to change X, even when it appears to go well, the people involved are engaged, they listen, they say, yeah, thanks. That was, you know, uh, that's really persuasive. Usually, right, 97% of the time, what happens is they say, okay, thanks for bringing that up. Let's move on to the next item on the agenda. But you haven't actually secured a commitment to when this is going to be re-engaged or... Are any resources actually going to be allocated or right? So even in the best case scenario, you have to follow up if you want that to happen. And then there are plenty of cases where you're, anytime you're in the realm of suggesting, what if we did less of X and more of Y, or I know we've been committed to X, but I think it's no longer the right strategy. There are people in the room who own X, who care about X who stand to lose if you move away from X, who are going to be bothered, who are going to take it personally. And so oftentimes, this is sort of hard to hear, right? Because you steal yourself, you get ready, you practice for that big moment. And what do you want to do afterwards? You want to go back to your office or you want to go home and you want to protect yourself and be done with it for a while. And it's really hard to say, actually, the most important conversation might be forthcoming, which is I have to go knock on that colleague's door and say, hey, I saw an expression on your face, or I heard you say X, and I realized that maybe this wasn't working for you or resonating for you, or I accidentally offended you. Can we talk? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think 
it's one of the most neglected steps is paying enough attention and then having enough courage to go take those follow-up steps to repair or check in with folks. Yeah. I can see how the, that final step is has the potential to be really transformative in terms of moving everybody on, maintaining harmonious relationships, holding your ground, but respecting where other people are coming from and what's important to them too. Yeah. Um, and in the end, since almost anything complex in an organization, any meaningful change requires like the support and interdependence of a lot of people, it also can just... Honestly, even if you say, I don't care about this courage angle, blah, 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 fine. Don't care about the courage angle, but just in your own self-interest, it's change management 101 to say, you don't want to leave a third or a half or whatever the people feeling like they're going to be in blocker mode. Yes. I was just thinking that as you were describing and giving some of those examples, that it was reminding me of classic stakeholder management is who's in the room? What do they care about? What perspective are they going to have on this? What's important to them? And if we just barge in with our own agenda and we don't stand in their shoes, then we're going to be missing lots of important signals and opportunities to really find compromise or points of agreement as well. And just information, right? Because mm. the other thing is that when you, you see somebody frown or they make a comment, we all do this, right? We draw a conclusion, right? We go from that particular stimulus to an inference about what it meant. They hate my idea. They're mad at me. Well, it could be. <laughs> it might be, but it could be a bunch of other things. Yeah. And so like sometimes the reason you have any kind of courageous conversation is not per se because you think it's going to change something in the here and now, but because it's information that helps you understand where that person is at and what you're going to need to do going forward. Yes. I'm chuckling because I often leap to those assumptions in conversations with my husband at home and I see an expression and I think, oh, I know what that means. And then yeah. if I if I take the a minute to say, I saw that on your face or well, you just did that. Does this mean X? I am gobsmacked how 99% of the times I've got it wrong. <laughs> it's like, no, no, not that at all. Yeah. I think we got a little bit off in psychology over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, there's been this whole thing in psychology where we call it theory of mind, which is basically just a fancy way of saying, are we good at knowing what other people are thinking? Can we infer correctly? And then there was originally this neuroscience that said, oh yeah, we have mirror neurons and all this. And it was a positive, optimistic view on theory of mind, on mind reading. And actually, if you look at the data more, the newer data, the story's not so optimistic at all. I think a fairer conclusion is, we're pretty lousy. We're pretty lousy at mind reading and we would be massively better served by assuming we don't know and therefore better ask. Yeah, that's great. So listeners, if you, you only take two things from this conversation, remember that no one is born with more of a courage gene than anyone else. And secondly, we're really bad at mind reading. So bear that in mind. And Jim, thank you so much for talking to us about what's in your book and sharing so much of the practical advice and wisdom and insights and examples that we can reflect on for our own work lives and careers. I was just going to ask a final question, which is, obviously, you've created this book, which is influencing people's thinking about their experiences at work and what's important to them personally. Has there been something in particular that stands out in your mind as a resource or perhaps a conversation over your career that has been really instrumental for you as well? So 
The obvious answer here is to talk about all the books on communication skills and all these kinds of things. And yes, those have been important to me, but I actually, there are two domains of knowledge I think are really important and underutilized by all of us. One is more reading of biographies, memoirs, and not just the Winston Churchill and Abe Lincoln's, but all sorts of folks who were in their own way nonconformists or lone wolves or just courageous actors, people who made small changes that ended up being really noteworthy. I, I think if one way to be inspired, to learn about how, A, they were human just like all of us, they had hurts, fears, problems, they got smacked down a few times, it's to read biographies and memoirs. So I, I do a lot of that kind of reading. And the other domain of reading that I think is under attuned to is stuff on cognitive behavioral, it's called cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's really just cognitive behavioral thinking. Because a lot of what prevents us from speaking up or not screwing it up when we are speaking up is the inner dialogue we have, right? So we might be in a meeting and I say, hey, Helen, I think we should do X. And then you say, well, I'm not sure now's the right time which might be innocently just a comment about when we should do it. But I twist that into, she always hates my ideas. She never goes for what I want to do. She's such a dot, 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 right? In other words, what I'm doing is in my head, I'm catastrophizing, I'm engaging in black and white thinking. And so I think that reading about cognitive behavioral therapy, like learning to recognize when your inner dialogue is unhelpful and not productive, and frankly, wrong, and how to get better at catching yourself and changing that inner dialogue is really, really, really useful. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And it's great to hear you express it so articulately. And on the biographies point, I read avidly as well, and business books and fiction. But the one category I've read less of is biographies. Sachi, you've inspired me to pick up a biography for an upcoming book to read. But thank you for talking to us and explaining how we can look differently at courage at work. And you've really inspired us to understand it a bit better, practice it more confidently and more competently, which is, I know, a key point in the book that we apply more skill at it. And how can listeners connect with you or follow your work if they've been enjoying the podcast conversation with you? So you could visit my website. It's jimdieter.com. I think I'm maybe the only Jim Dieter in the world doing anything like this. Not hard to find. And also find me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a great way to follow me. I post a lot of new ideas and I share things from all the other places I publish. So I would say connect with me on LinkedIn uh, and then also follow me on my website would be great. Fantastic. Thank you. Best wishes for your ongoing research and, and teaching in this area. We look forward to following the new ideas and thinking that will come from that. And thank you so much for being a brilliant guest. Thank you. What I realised from talking with Jim was how much our potential for being courageous stems from how we look at the world, what we tell ourselves and what we pay attention to. It's encouraging to know that we can all be courageous every day in small interactions. It doesn't have to be a big gesture or an extraordinary challenge or something highly visible. When I think about instances of courage I've witnessed at work during my career, 
I think about people who have not shied away from broaching an uncomfortable conversation or voicing a question which everyone might be thinking but no one is saying. Or who have asked the question, why are we doing this? What courageous act has inspired you to do something differently at work that perhaps took you out your comfort zone? Let me know, I'd love to hear. Next week on the podcast, we'll be talking about how to create a genuinely customer-focused business that takes a refreshingly long-term perspective. My guest will be Alistair Douglas, CEO of the fintech business, Totally Money. Here's a sneak preview. Being young, looking for your first job all the way through to retirement is a journey and you will need support along that journey for most of the time for most people. And that's why we're all about the long term, because we want our customers to trust us. We're a very customer focused business, fintech and fundraising. Clearly, there was a huge wave of fundraising and constantly be reading about these businesses that had just launched, raising tens, hundreds of millions of dollars, plowing into growth and advertising. And then many of those businesses failed, but our approach has been a slower and steadier one. You want to make sure that you're around not just in a year, but in five years and 10 years, and then there's a value to longevity. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, please rate the podcast online, leave a review and share it with friends. And if you like to watch as well as listen, don't forget the videos are also on my YouTube channel. See you next Monday. Have a great week and keep on being brilliant. Brilliant.